Exits for Podcasts is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts about movies, nostalgia, and pop culture, head on over to cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I need a hero. I'm holding up for a hero till the end of the night. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh on the fight. I need a hero. I'm holding up for a hero till the morning light. Hey everybody, welcome to Exits for Podcasts. We're going to be taking a look at the X-Men franchise, starting with Giant Size X-Men number one. We're going to be looking at Uncanny X-Men and its spin-off titles like X-Factor, Excalibur, and New Mutants, as well as solo titles like Wolverine and Cable. We'll take a look at the Marvel Universe crossovers and X-Men crossovers that occur during these years along the way. I'm Nico, and you may know me from now and again, where I talk about my love of music with my co-host Chris Podcasts. Here, I'm going to be talking about my love of comic books that inspired me not just to do a podcast about comic books, but I even make a comic book as well. My co-host here is the amazing Jonah. Hey, Jonah. Hello, everyone. I'm Jonah. You might recognize me from an episode of Now and Again. That was the episode where we played a little mini game and I kicked Chris's ass. It was a lot of fun. I hope to have just as much fun over here talking about comics. I grew up reading comics obsessively. My dad would give me the trade paperbacks that Marvel published of the crossovers that the X-Men would do, things like Dark Phoenix Saga and the Mutant Massacre. Jonah, what brought you to wanting to do this project? I never started off reading comics like Nico did, but I always had a vague interest and borderline knowledge of where original media came from such as most of the superheroes we see today in the Marvel movies. And so when you said to me that you wanted to talk about these characters with me, it was such a, a huge pleasure for me. I believe there was one character in particular that caught your eye, and that's why we're starting where we're starting. Yes, Nico and I share a fascination and love for Nightcrawler, Kurt Wagner. I never knew where Kurt came from, but I always just loved him every time I saw him. I want to know where he came from. And this led to, where did the X-Men get their start? Where did the ubiquitous members come from, and why do people love them so much? To talk about that, there's no choice but to start with the Chris Claremont run that starts with Giant Size Number 1. There's not too much you need to know going into this before we start, just a handful of things. Number 1, you should know that Charles Xavier brought together the original five X-Men. While canon will later shift and retcon this, for our purposes, the original five are Scott Summers, Cyclops, with his signature optic blast... Warren Worthington III, the angel, with his big feathery wings and money. Hank McCoy, the beast, who at this point is a oversized, real hot, sexy bear cub chub human... Oh, he's so hot, it's stupid at this point. Well, by now, where we're starting, giant size X-Men, he is blue and furry, but actually all of his appearances in X-Men until he leaves the team, he is a human. We have Bobby Drake, who is the Iceman. At this point, though, he's a little bit more like the Snowboy. We have... Jean Grey, or Marvel Girl, who at this point in canon, this is telekinetic, but at this point in canon has developed telepathy. They also have friends and family, like Alex Summers, Havoc, Scott's younger brother, who basically has the same powers, but instead of being a signature red optic blast, it's just a giant circle of energy. As well as Polaris, his sometimes girlfriend, sometimes Iceman's love interest, which obviously would never happen now. Lorna Dane is a green-haired mutant who controls magnetism, which constantly makes her think she's Magneto's daughter. Now, Jonah, had you been aware that these were the original five X-Men, or that characters like Havoc and Polaris predate Wolverine and Storm in the title? No, I didn't realize that the original team was so small, and I didn't realize that some of the more ubiquitous X-Men team members, like Wolverine and Storm, didn't get their start until Chris Claremont's run. They weren't introduced until the issues we're going to be talking about today, and it's really interesting to see that the original five aren't the characters that are as popular today. I agree. It's really funny because Angel is a character that 
kind of needs a gimmick to be popular with the Archangel bit. I don't think Iceman was ever quite as relevant as when he came out of the closet. So it's really interesting to talk about how many people don't realize the original five were the original five. That's pretty much everything you need to know. You should know that at this point, Magneto is not a sympathetic character. He is not a Holocaust survivor. He is still a terrorist who mostly likes to kill children. Wolverine has appeared on the pages of The Incredible Hulk, written by Len Wein over in Incredible Hulk 180. Banshee and Sunfire have appeared in the X-Men, initially as foes and later as allies. The issues we're going to discuss today have all been written by Chris Claremont and penciled by Dave Cockrum, with a few exceptions. Len Wein is the credited writer on Giant Size X-Men number one, as well as the plotter on Uncanny X-Men 94 and 95, with script by Chris Claremont. Uncanny 96 is a story by Chris Claremont and script by Chris Claremont, with plot assist by Bill Mantlow. And Giant Size Fantastic Four has a story by Len Wein, with a script by Chris Claremont, and pencils by John Buscema. Jonah, do you want to tell us a little bit about what happens in the issues we're going to cover? Giant Size X-Men number one. The original X-Men go missing and Xavier recruits a new team to save them. When the new team arrives, the island the X-Men are trapped on is actually a mutant. They fight, throw the bad guy into the fucking sun, and then try to figure out what to do with 13 X-Men. Classic X-Men number one is the exact same story, but it's much more heavily focused on Scott and his own issues. Giant Size Fantastic Four number four is an issue where we really see how much of a bullies the Fantastic Four are against a mutant who just wants help. Uncanny 94 and 95, the X-Men pick a roster, then respond to an attack on NORAD base by Count Nefaria and his Animan. When the X-Men continue to struggle as a team, they find a way to work together to defeat the Count, but not before the death of Thunderbird. Uncanny 96. While grieving Thunderbird, Cyclops blasts open the Demon's Nest, and the X-Men go from chill hangout to killing demons. Uncanny 97. The X-Men go up against former allies Polaris and Havoc as they are mind-controlled by a new villain, Eric the Red, a former alias of Cyclops. Gene aids the team, though all three attackers ultimately escape. Uncanny 98 to 100. It's Christmas when the X-Men are attacked by Sentinels in New York City. They fight them off, but not before Banshee, Logan, and Gene are kidnapped to space? Elsewhere, Xavier is also kidnapped by Sentinels. The remaining X-Men take to the sky to save their teammates when the new crew are pitted against the original five. Hint, they're robots. The drama settles after a big battle, giving the X-Men a chance to escape, though their shuttle must fly through a cosmic storm. Jean takes it on herself and in the process undergoes a universe-changing transformation. We're also going to be discussing X-Men Classic. At this point in comics history, it was uncommon to publish trade paperbacks unless the work was of considerable significance. Marvel often did reprint their classic stories from their Silver Age heyday, and it wasn't uncommon for annuals to include classic tales. X-Men Classic was the first time that Marvel went in, adapted the original story by adding pages by Chris Claremont with an art by John Bolton, as well as 13-page backup stories, frequently shedding light on character development that had to be implied off-panel because the book was bi-monthly at this point. I also want to mention that Giant Size X-Men number one came out in April of 1975, whereas Classic X-Men number one came out in September of 1986. That same month saw the release of Uncanny X-Men 209, the kickoff to the Mutant Massacre, New Mutants number 43, and X-Factor number eight. Classic X-Men in many ways was a response to Gene being back from the dead in X-Factor, stirring interest in the classic X-Men plots. Classic X-Men number one is a reworking of Giant Size X-Men number one and contains the most new content of any issue on the series. It follows the story of the new X-Men and the old X-Men 
interacting with one another after their escape of the island. Classic X-Men number two is a story exploring Jean and Aurora's newfound friendship. In classic X-Men number three, we see the new team mourning Thunderbird, a light bit of body snatching in the first inclusion of a character in a backup story significantly earlier than their first appearance. Classic X-Men number 4 has a buddy up between Kurt and Logan, while Classic 5 is a classic Colossus downer. Classic X-Men 6-8 is a non-stop Phoenix foreshadowing party, with 6 a story between Jean and Scott, 7 a Hellfire Club story featuring several original characters, and 8 shows the first contact between Jean and the Phoenix. With all that said... I think it's great that you wanted to do this to talk about Nightcrawler, and he's the first new X-Man we meet in Giant Size X-Men number one. Yeah, he gets three action-filled pages of him being chased around by an angry mob in Germany. Nightcrawler is also the first example of a mutant that looks like a mutant. Up until this point, we only really had Angel who looked different with his angel wings, and who's really going to be scared of someone with angelic wings literally named Angel. Nightcrawler looks like a demon. It's a really obvious mutation that later lead to that kind of conflict. Yeah, he's the first time that one of the X-Men can be hated and feared on sight. They frequently would chain up Angel's wings, but here Nightcrawler is literally being chased through the streets by torch-wielding villagers. This is actual hated and feared territory. This three-page introduction really gives us a chance to get to know Nightcrawler. Wolverine's two-page introduction is technically the longest introduction of any character that had already existed. Wolverine gets two pages where he basically says that if the government doesn't let him quit and go off with this aging bald man in a wheelchair that he's going to i don't know does it seem like he's saying he's gonna kill the guy (laughs) Uh, he did threaten him with his claws so yeah kind of yeah okay so nightcrawler gets three pages and wolverine gets two pages and then banshee gets two panels it's a sad day to be a banshee fan and it really does not get better for him right now it really doesn't get better there's actually a story later on that we're going to cover where people are fighting and Banshee comes up and saves the day, and they're like, ha-ha, you forgot about Banshee, and you kind of realize even the writers know that we forget about Banshee. So then we get the, the first really intensely, blatantly racist stuff. Storm is this untamable woman goddess from Africa. You know, everyone else is from a country. Nightcrawler's from Germany. Wolverine is from Canada. Banshee is from Ireland, but Storm is from Africa, this really just generic Africa. It's a way in which comics had a long way to go. It's really great that we're getting a strong, powerful black woman fighting alongside these heroes and being one of them, and not just one of them, but one of the most respected of them. But this untamable African queen vibe is very of its time and a little uncomfortable. Yeah, it is. But this is the first instance of me, a new reader, seeing this and saying, Charles is doing some kind of coercion. Because I feel like Storm has no reason to go with him. Yeah. She starts off with, like, she's like, I'm literally treated as a goddess here. Why would I go with you two? All right, I kind of believe your words. Sure, I'll go with you. It's really, it's a weird turn. It almost seems a little forced that she's going with him. Yeah, you know, I don't necessarily think that he's using mind powers on Storm here. Just like, you will come to find as you read that Charles has very little issue using mind powers on people. He struggles with it, and then it's like, ultimately, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'll do it. But I do completely agree with you. None of these people have any reason to do any of these things for anybody. It is so bizarre. And they're just like, yeah, I'll join the mutant cause. So then we get two panels of Sunfire, and like... It's one of those things where, like, this guy's a dick off the bat. He's someone we know, but Wolverine is someone we know, and Wolverine got two whole pages. 
If I were Sunfire, I'd be pretty angry that I got dicked down to two panels, too. I like to describe Sunfire as a hothead. There are three aggressive and people who can't really work on a team introduced. Three characters of Wolverine, Sunfire, and then later Thunderbird, where these characters constantly butt heads with everyone who is in charge. This is the first instance of someone that's not likable. As of right now, Wolverine is likable. He's witty, he's a little funny, and the snarkiness is okay. You justify him being an asshole. Sunfire, who I wasn't introduced to until now, is just a dick right off the bat, does not make me like him, doesn't make me like him in the future, and when he does just leave, I'm completely fine with it. He wasn't like, well, he didn't want to be there anyway, why did you go? Yeah, I mean, he barely even joined. It's a footnote. It's not anything like Colossus's pain. This introduction to Colossus and his aching farm boy man pain, it's not going to get much better than this, folks. It, Colossus is sort of like the buff metal sad sack of the X-Men, but, you know, you root for him. Here, he's still, like, optimistic that maybe he can change the world. The world hasn't broken him yet. Don't worry. It will. Here, the story is Colossus has to jump in front of a tractor to save his sister. I can't think of anything more Colossus. Oh, no, the tractor that's the only way that my family can make money working on the farm is about to kill my baby sister. Oh, God, oh, God. And it's the thing that means I have to leave my family. Oh, God, oh, God. It's just like... I just can't help you, Metal Man. You look like a giant ribbed condom, and you bum me out, and I just can't help you. Is he ribbed for Kitty's pleasure? Oh, man. Hopefully not till she's legal. After Colossus's two and a half pages, we get two more really racially uncomfortable pages with Thunderbird. Xavier is basically like, I guess it's true what they say, all of your people are no good. And I'm like, this is the most racist thing I've read in a couple of pages. Again, I'd like to point out Chris Claremont did not write this issue. This is written by Len Wein, but my goodness, there's some real problematic stuff in these character introductions. And as I said, Thunderbird being one of those characters that I don't understand joining, literally he shows he cannot work with a team, but in this specific instance when his entire people are being called out and insulted, he doesn't deck Charles. I fully expected him to punch Charles in the face and he's just like, I'm going to prove you wrong. They do paint a picture that Charles is really goading a number of these people. He's, like, really pushing it with Thunderbird. I mean, it really is, like, race bullying. Thunderbird's like, all right, I guess I'll help you save people. At this point, not only do we not know the mission that the X-Men have to go on, these new X-Men, none of them know the mission they have to go on. This is evidenced when, finally, they're like, why'd you bring us all together, bub? And Xavier's like... I'm my original X-Men I'm missing, so here's the one I found. He'll fill you in. And Cyclops comes out and is like, Hey, so I kind of lost all my old teammates on an island, and when I got off the island, my powers didn't work, and then my powers were super powered up, and I got my old teacher here, and he drafted a whole bunch of you into this weird secret paramilitary organization, so you guys can come help me rescue my old teammates who I left on that island. And they're all still sort of fine with it, but still don't like each other. Like, they really focus on how they're like, well, the mission doesn't sound bad, but I sure hate everyone I'm with. It's really obnoxious. It really is 48 pages of no one getting along. Yeah, it's them trying to establish this new team and establishing six new X-Men, and they just don't like each other. I understand that when you first meet someone, you're not always going to get along. You're not going to be buddy-buddy. You're not going to be the family that X-Men always wants and portrays it as, that the X-Men are a family. These people are not family, they are not even friends, they are barely acquaintances, and they just want to hammer this fact in. There are multiple lines and references to mutants can't work with mutants, and it's really 
a bizarre way of doing this. It is hardcore. They want you to know how little these people get along, and they will not let you sleep until you are aware that these people are not going to get along. They keep beating home this whole idea. I think Storm even says it. If this is what it's like when mutants come together, I don't know that I want any part of it. And they keep saying that. And then they get to the island, and they're on the island, and they're like, everybody, chop, chop, chop up the island. Find the X-Men. Find the X-Men. And then it turns out this island that they're like, chop, choppy, chop, this island is literally a mutant. And it's trying to, like, eat the mutant energies out of the other mutants. So this whole idea that mutants shouldn't come together, ultimately the bad guy is a giant mutant island. And the X-Men are just like, well, kill it! Like, I mean, it's kind of on the X-Men here. It's really weird this island is described as wanting to steal the power and, like, essence from other mutants. But I'm just thinking right now, how is it getting other mutants to it? How often does this island actually eat? If everybody is using it as like a human leg, if you were a human landing strip, I think you'd eat the shit that landed on you too. Look, I'm not actually defending Krakoa, the giant mutant living island here. I am just saying, the X-Men are very just, well, kill it! The way the X-Men decide to fix this is they work together to throw it into the sun. They do start throwing things into the sun a lot. If you are at home and you are reading along with us, you might want to have a column in your notes that's the number of times the X-Men throw things into the sun. Put your first hash mark in there. You're going to have a lot more. It's going to get real uncomfortable. I do also need to point out this whole thing ends with 13 X-Men. Jean, Bobby, Warren, Lorna, Alex, and they barely spoke at all. What are you going to do with 13 X-Men? You'd have to give them personalities first. Also, there's so many men! It's Xavier, Cyclops, Iceman, Angel, Havoc, Wolverine, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Sunfire, Thunderbird, and Banshee. And then it's three women, Jean, Storm, and Polaris. It makes sense because this is a product of its time. But when it's a one-to-four ratio, that's a bad ratio. That is a very bad ratio. It's a very bad ratio. What's really interesting is the classic X-Men number one, not only does it add pages focusing on Cyclops' journey home and his experience with what happened on the island, making it more of a Cyclops story, it also adds a considerable amount of pages to the end. So this story ends on what do we do with 13 X-Men after an extended time on this island and just the most boring fight sequence you've read. And instead, it's this short two-page fight sequence boils it down to, oh, we found them, we beat the island, we threw it into the sun, we got on a plane, we flew home. And then we get 13 pages back at the mansion. The fight was broken down so small to... It actually just fits on one page. It's just a few panels of them saying, yeah, they beat this island, and that's it. And then we get this new story of what happens afterward. If the original run didn't already show that mutants can't work with mutants, they literally are going to drill this into your brain right now because the original X-Men clearly cannot work well with the new X-Men and they make it known. They make it known the new X-Men are not welcome if they are staying. The first few pages of 94 will ultimately discuss all of this anyway. But in classic X-Men number one... Xavier's back at the mansion and he's like, it's so good to have my children home. And then he just does that whack Xavier thing where he immediately starts telepathically spying on people. And he's like, I wonder what Lorna and Alex are up to. They're like, yeah, I think we need to quit. It's just, you know, it's time for us to go. And he's like, ah, I should get out of their heads. And then he still pretends like he has no idea they're quitting the next day. It's really annoying. (laughs) The other thing that this classic X-Men introduces is 
Gene. Gene, 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 Gene. At this point, Gene was already appearing in X Factor, which was not being written by Claremont, so Chris Claremont felt very annoyed that his favorite toy was back. He had no access to it. So he just starts shoehorning in crazy amounts of Gene, including a romantic moment between her and Wolverine that is completely incongruous with their characters for the next several years. However, that is not the most notable moment. I believe the most notable moment of this classic X-Men would be the scene between Banshee, Colossus, Nightcrawler, Iceman, and later Thunderbird. Yeah, Bobby kind of acts like a little kid that's just going off that he cannot share. He can't share this mansion with anyone else besides the original people. They're not family. He basically tells them to go back to where they came from, and Colossus being the brooding, tragic, walking story he is goes, maybe I should go home. It's heavy-handed, it's dramatic, it's almost silly. And then, after Bobby leaves, he runs into Thunderbird, who's like, Hey man, like, is everything alright? You look a little pissed off, you look a little bad right now. And Iceman just attacks him. Just straight up freezes him. Just straight up freezes him and knocks him down. It's actually crazy. I don't know what Claremont was thinking, to be honest with you. It's, it's a pretty ugly moment for Iceman. There's another moment in Classic X-Men. Just after Gene and Logan have their intimate moment that feels completely out of place, shortly after Gene and Scott's intimate moment, Storm and Warren are having a flirty moment in the sky, sure, and then Warren sees Logan, like, aggressing at Gene, but Gene's, you know, handling herself, but Warren still attacks Logan anyway. Gene's like, I can handle myself. Storm's like, I will separate you with a storm, and Gene's like, I can handle myself. Like, a lot of this was written with hindsight in mind, and Claremont's, like, definitely tapping into things that he's going to get to later on. That if I were Jonah reading this for the first time, I would be like, wait, what the hell? That Gene's like, no, Logan, we can't act on our obvious physical attraction. What the fuck physical attraction? Gene, you had two lines. (laughs) Gene, what are you talking about? I can't deny that there's a physical attraction between you and Logan. What do you mean? What do you mean? You just met him. You didn't speak at all in the original, and now you're saying there's this undeniable attraction to him? Yeah, you were a little too busy being cracked out on cocoa coconut oil, and you couldn't get yourself together, and... No. No, no, no. However, none of that remotely compares to the worst issue we're going to talk about this episode. Giant Size Fantastic Four, number four, where the Fantastic Four can't stop beating up a confused mutant. This entire issue boils down to Jamie... Jamie Madrox, the multiple man. The multiple man not being able to control his powers and looking for help, and the Fantastic Four, ignoring what he says, tries to beat the crap out of him. They repeatedly try to beat him up. It is extraordinary. The the thing is just like, here's a confused mutant in a bodysuit. Time to punch him. And I'm like, what? It's, It's just really bad. But I don't think any part of the ongoing fight compares to, at one point, They realize they need to defeat the Multiple Man as a team, because that's what the Fantastic Four do. They're a family! Though I should point out that right now, the Fantastic Four is Reed Richards, Medusa, the Human Torch, and the Thing. And at this point, in the art, they begin lowering Professor Xavier out of the helicopter by a tractor beam when he falls out of his wheelchair... And the thing has to catch him so he can use his mind powers to help stop a mutant who can't stop duplicating himself. Did I leave the part out where Xavier nearly falls out of his tractor beam wheelchair situation? 
falls out. It's completely out of place that Charles is showing up to begin with, but he just falls out of the track. It's so ableist. I just want to be like, Len Wein, is this what you think life is like for people in wheelchairs? They get lifted up by tractor beam and fall out? I need everyone at home to look at this issue and look at where Charles is the psychic blast, because all it is with the psychic blast is Charles is the ugliest stink eye, and that's it. No other indication of psychic power is going on. He looks at him meanly, and he falls down. Xavier being over here in this terrible issue, it explains a little bit why he's barely in 94-95. When we switch over to Uncanny 94 and 95 for the next adventurer of our Merry Mutants, we kind of spend like 15 minutes talking about the roster, and it makes me really tired. (laughs) Five or six pages just roster checking. So they decide the roster definitely in is Xavier, Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Thunderbird, and Banshee. They decide that definitely out is Sunfire, Angel, Marvel Girl, Iceman, Havoc, and Polaris. Now, if you want to find out a little bit more about what happens to Angel and Iceman, check out the Champions episodes that I'll be covering with Kyle. There you're going to find out what happens to those two. If you want to find out what happens to Marvel Girl, Havoc, or Polaris, just keep reading this book because they don't really go anywhere. As far as Sunfire, he will have occasional appearances here and there. How did you feel reading this, Jonah, as somebody who'd never known these characters before and still feel like at this point none of them have personalities? Were you emotional when they kept being like, No, I'm leaving! No, I'm staying! Like, did it have any effect on you? No, not at all. You give me six new characters to try to fall in love with, along with six that were already established, and now you're just getting rid of six of them. They still don't have lines. I don't know who these people are. I can't fall in love with them. I'm not upset that they're leaving. When Giant Size X-Men number one ends on, what are we going to do with 13 X-Men? My thought was, all right, well, I guess those people get to share the spotlight and this team, whoever goes out on a mission is going to rotate. No, they just cut the cast and cut this team down considerably, but people don't actually leave. It's really weird as a new reader going into this. It was just a weird feeling. I think it reads as unfocused as it is. At this point, Giant Size X-Men, having been a minor hit, was meant to have more giant-sized issues. Originally, 94-95 was going to be Giant Size X-Men number two and come out the next quarter. The book was popular enough that they felt strongly that they could push it to a bi-monthly schedule instead. It's the unfocusedness of multiple people having that much input. The roster will find a place to rest. Once Cyclops decides that he is ultimately staying about halfway through the issue, we get the original team leaving, and then Scott's like, okay, time to train the X-Men in what is the most boring, ugly, basic bitch splash page I have ever seen. Very little action is still happening in these issues. There isn't much going on. Not that I don't appreciate what I am reading, because I do like it. It's weird to see how this actually became a phenomenon with so little actually going on. It's so much just, like, soap drama, as opposed to what I would expect from a comic book, which is fighting in action and beating up bad guys. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of talking and reflecting and trying to figure out how to build this book right now. Which maybe explains why we're going to continue to talk about how no one gets along for another few pages. Even Hothead Wolverine kind of keeps it in check. Thunderbird can't stop stepping to Cyclops. He just can't stop fighting with Cyclops. 
Now, if you read the classic X-Men version, that ugly single splash page is replaced by two far superior pages that show off everyone's powers a little bit better. There's also an additional page about how Thunderbird watched Wolverine try to make this jump over and over again. He's trying to make it himself, and Storm is like, oh, maybe he can do it because he's got an unbreakable body. You're not unbreakable. And Thunderbird's like, no, I must be the strongest. It's a little rough, but the classic X-Men pages at least add some depth to this. 94-95 is just a very basic, generic plot arc of, here's a bad guy trying to do some bad good and his animal-shaped villains. We're gonna go stop him, because he's threatening to destroy the world, which he can't actually do. They even make a note of that. Yeah, and he literally, like, dissolves their plane around them at one point, so they all just start falling from the sky, and the cliffhanger is them all falling. Meanwhile, you know, one of them can teleport, you know, two of them can fly... One of them can turn into metal. We know so much about how this could actually probably turn out okay. Well, it's a really interesting cliffhanger. It's just so silly that the jet plane disappears. Yeah, yeah, it was just very, very generic comic, like, this is what they're doing. Like, Saturday morning cartoon kind of plot. The classic X-Men makes one other significant change to 95 that I have a significant problem with. It introduces Moira McTaggart an issue earlier than she should be introduced. She initially showed up in Uncanny X-Men 96, but Classic X-Men inserts her an issue earlier. She's shown riding a horse with her adopted daughter, Rain, who would later become the new mutant Wolvesbane. That character would not exist until roughly Uncanny X-Men 160-something. This is Uncanny X-Men 95. I understand the excitement to kind of seed these things, but in doing so... You take some of the logic away. A similar thing will be done with Thunderbird's younger brother after Thunderbird dies at the end of this arc. Thunderbird sacrifices himself to stop a plane. Xavier tries to convince him not to kill himself, that there must be another way, but Thunderbird believes there can't be, and sacrifices himself, believing it's his contribution he can make to the world. It's a little heavy, it's a little dark, and Scott's like, oh, well, that's what you get when you wear the uniform, which is really glib. The next issue, we will see Scott mourning and... and hysterical, but they insert Thunderbird's younger brother, Warpath, James Proudstar, who would be introduced as a member of the Hellions, the New Mutants' rivals. This is cool in some ways, in other ways it does kind of take something away. I'm not sure what, but it does. As a new reader, it, we read the original Giant Size X-Men and then all the Uncanny issues, and then went back into the classic. So I was introduced to Moira in 96, so seeing it here, it gives a little bit better picture, but this came out years, years after. You don't need to do that. You don't need to give us backstory to a character who, someone who's trying to read this going forward, wasn't introduced yet, technically. It's a forced seeding. I agree with Nico. It takes away something from it from people who've already read this and are rebuying this and rereading this. I also think that the classic X-Men story here is... Oh my god, the classic X-Men story here literally involves someone stealing Thunderbird's body. It's so painful and heavy and real and kind of gritty. Once again, the classic X-Men, sometimes it's a hit, sometimes it's a miss. Hindsight as a writing device is really tricky. These were not, at this point, written with posterity in mind. So, sometimes you just kind of have what you have. And they told the best story they could with the art restrictions and timing restrictions they had. Going from bummers to what the hells? For you, Jonah, as somebody reading Uncanny X-Men for the first time, did you expect Cyclops to be randomly optic blasting around the X-Mansion in rage pain and wake up 
A magical demon Karn? No. While I know the limitations of comic books in anything, in any medium like this, is what can you come up with? I didn't expect X-Men to turn into D&D. I wasn't expecting eldritch demons to come about from this. That is really random and really weird. And if you were a new reader like myself, you probably weren't expecting that at all. And it's just always on the X-Mansion campus. Just always there. I jokingly thought about, like, when this was demons, I was like, oh, is this going to be Kurt's father? (laughs) Nope, that's terrible. There's a scene in the classic X-Men story that's not in the original X-Men story here, and it ties into another classic X-Men story as well. Much like I mentioned, the additional page about Thunderbird needing to practice that jump, well, that got referenced in a flashback in the morning story following Thunderbird's death. Jean and Storm had a classic X-Men story about why they're such fast friends. They're just fiercely strong women, and they respect each other. And as far as I'm concerned, there is not enough of that in the world. So you can give me that any time. But in that story, and in the additional page of this X-Men classic, Storm's totally cool being naked, and everyone else just doesn't understand her lack of modesty. And it comes off really like the white male writers at Marvel think all people who live in the country continent of africa are some sort of hyper nudist almost uncivilized people and it's it's really uncomfortable and it makes me very angry because so much of this work is excellent there are some weird implications here yeah storm's name actually does mean beauty so it makes sense she's beautiful she doesn't mind showing off her body but again with this idea she's untamable doesn't abide by these same rules and it's kind of it's when you make it your only black characters like this, it's a little racist. Yeah. Be- Not just a little, it's a little more than just a little racist. Because believe me, there's nothing wrong with other cultures having more or less modesty. It is specifically that it is being nearly fetishized here. That is the problem. Do go from this sort of swimsuit situation where they're all just like in the pool showing off for each other to this quick to battle, ready to be a team. In the wake of Thunderbird, they're all bonding, they're all becoming close, they're all, you know, loving each other as family. Storm starts to do that Storm thing she does. Anytime Storm gets claustrophobic, she will unleash lightning, and then we're all just sort of, like, in for it. Just wait until she learns how to ride Space Winds. It's quickly establishing Storm as one of the most powerful mutants they have ever encountered or written before. And I'm okay with that. I love Storm. I think she's a great character. And I don't mind her being more overpowered than most of the other mutants that we have right now. But you're going to start to see the favoritism of certain characters and where characters are going to become much more powerful than others. I think the two characters that are introduced that get the most favoritism are going to be Storm and Logan. And I think it's very easy to see how that's starting right now and how it will continue in the future. Oh, and it's not going to stop as soon as we get into issue 97. We talked about how the X-Men constantly need to work on their roster, work on their roster. So many of the characters that have been written out have already reappeared or are about to reappear. But the first thing we open on is this incredible space splash page. It's unbelievable. It's so cool. And it looks like nothing we've seen, and it's so dynamic. I do think that was an important thing to 97. 97 really, like, kicked you awake. It was like, nope, here's why this is a popular book. You get these new villains, and sure, it's kind of weird that Polaris and Havoc are already back, but in 96, we started to get this cool turning point. Moira comes running in with a machine gun, and she's like, I don't think this demon's going to be stopped by mutant power, so I'm going to shoot it up. Now we're getting like this space opera. It is definitely not the book that Giant Size X-Men number one was. As a new reader, 97 is the issue that I saw 
this really take the turn. 96, you do see it slightly. I think 97 is where when Chris Claremont is on his own, he's really shining. I think 97 is the start of this. We have this really action-packed, really cool fight that we're like, the X-Men are fighting each other. It's brother versus brother. It's amazing. It's great. I agree. I think that we really are starting to get into some really interesting drama here. I think this is, though, where maybe Claremont's love of, but ha, wouldn't it be interesting, kind of maybe gets a little annoying. Many fans wouldn't remember that Cyclops one time did parade as Eric the Red. So this new Eric the Red, and you're like, wait, who the hell is he? He's not Cyclops. I was just told that Cyclops was Eric the Red, and he's mind-controlling Lorna and Alex. Now, I do want to point out that Lorna and Alex's page is so shoehorned and so tight. It's two pages all together from the time they appear seem okay, seem happy, something bad happens, one of them rushes to save the other one, now that something's bad happened to both of them, and now we're already back to the X-Men. The space in this issue is really tight. You don't really still have a lot of personalities. Scott loves to yell, Wolverine's kind of a dick, Banshee's usually in the background somewhere, Kurt wants to be uplifting, Colossus is just always sad, Storm is used as the catch-all woman, at this point, as a new reader, how attached to these personalities are you? Not really. It's A lot of it is dependent on who's getting what lines and how they're being said. Right when I was, As I was reading this, I was like, of the new characters introduced, I like Wolverine, Storm, and, and Nightcrawler, the people getting the most lines. I thought Colossus is okay. He's kind of just the butt of most of these jokes. And Banshee is just there in the background. He doesn't do much. He doesn't get many lines. Not everyone is still developed yet, especially if you're not reading the classic issues right away. There are just these characters that are there that are just, they were hammering this idea that they can't work together, and then unseen time passes, and they're kind of just a family now. It's really, it's a little too fast-paced and smushed together. I, much as I do love it, it's too much for right now. It needs to be spread out a little bit more. It needs to be that little bit of that natural growth of love and companionship and camaraderie. I super agree. I think we are getting some amount of disproportionate focus, which is resulting in almost a misunderstanding of the relationships. There is one other thing I wanted to point out. This is the first time that we got three women in one extended sequence. Storm and Jean and polaris all fighting together it's just a little disappointing that the first time we have all of those women in one place they're all fighting i would have liked it if it was a little bit more positive but i'm excited either way that we're starting to see more strong women you know we were just told two of these women were leaving the books but they're back and are they ever back as we roll into uncanny 98 through 100 it's the first time you can really start to be like ah ha ha this is x-men the description that you gave, sending them to space. Well, this is the first time that I can remember the X-Men going to space. And man, do they ever go to space. I do need to point out that they right away mention that it's Christmas, right? So I love that it's Christmas in Uncanny X-Men 98. Then Cyclops says it's been a fucking year. I need to run some dates with you really quick. May 75 was Giant Size X-Men number one. August of 75 was Uncanny 94. October of 75 was 95. December of 1975 was Uncanny number 96. February of 76 was Uncanny 97. April of 76 is one is Uncanny 98. So it's literally been a year in publishing, but it's sort of been a slow year if you kind of think about it. If Giant Size number one represents their first meeting a year ago, the events of 94 and 95 are roughly a week, a few days after Giant Size number one, or the quitting is poorly timed. 
Uncanny 96 is days after the events of 94-95 by Cyclops' admission of having just lost Thunderbird. I guess 97 can be months later, but this is definitely a case where those classic X-Men backup stories are kind of necessary to gap this. It's so easy spread out. Claremont has Jean clarify that it's been weeks that Havoc and Polaris are missing, which is insane to me. They've been missing for weeks? It's just crazy. So I just kind of had to get that in there. The timing is getting a little funny. I think they kind of have to do this because what they want as these plots doesn't work if it's all simultaneously back-to-back. We have to have these large gaps of just time missing that we don't see. In this Christmas scene, everyone just seems happy. Everyone's just happy to be out. It's a happy issue. Like, you're not expecting anything bad to happen. And then the fucking Sentinels ruin Gene and Scott's date, which... Seeing the relationship between Gene and Scott is really, really interesting. Scott really has so much trouble vocalizing how he really feels. And if it wasn't for Gene being a telepath, there would have been a lot more issues in their relationship. Because she reads his mind and knows that he loves her. He just can't say it. It's this weird dynamic between them where they're in love, but it almost feels like a forced love. Like they're forcing themselves to say this. They're relying on a relationship that was last touched on five or six years ago. One of the things is the X-Men stopped being published, and while they would occasionally appear in other titles, they weren't overwhelmingly appearing in other titles. They weren't such popular characters that they couldn't stay out of other titles. So one of the things that happened was when the X-Men returned for this massive reboot, the characters hadn't been updated in years So we were just told to remember this is what they had been like several years earlier and run with it. They didn't take the time to recraft the characters. The first time they were able to do that was under Claremont's pen. Claremont spends a lot of time updating Jean and making her an adult. I don't know that he spends too much time updating Cyclops, but I also just think Cyclops is like a whiny, problematic man-child. So there's also that. That's just what Scott is. Scott... This throughout this entire issue, just see Scott not being able to make decisions, Scott not being able to move on from things. He has so much trouble with all of his emotions that it literally just, he doesn't know how to react to things. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. It's a weird dynamic to have in a leader where he is a good leader most of the time, but you give him one decision where he has to make it based on an emotion, he can't do anything. No, oh, yeah, he shuts down in the face of difficulty a lot. I've never understood Cyclops apologists. I'm not even super anti-Cyclops. Like, I don't care for him. He is one of my least favorite X-Men. But I'm not like, uh, Cyclops is in the book. I just won't buy it. It's nothing like that. I do feel like Cyclops is not a strong leader. So I don't understand fans that are like, I am so about Cyclops. I'm like, why? I like Cyclops a lot more before starting to really read about him. I like him more than Nico does, but not as much as I used to. But 98 through 100 are a really, it's another really good start. It's a really good grasping onto readers of, this is really cool. They're fighting giant robots and they all get taken to space. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's going on. This is, I think, tension done really well, where you're kind of left in suspension of what is going on. Their three X-Men are captured. How are they going to get to them? They don't know where they went. They're trying to scan the entire world and they can't find them. And they're in outer fucking space. Yeah, and the way you're told they're in outer space, the X-Men think that they've broken out of the place they're trapped 
The X-Men think they're escaping, and they fall into the vacuum. Space! It's a shock. It's, it's so cool. Xavier's hanging out with his space buddy, Dr. Peter Corbeau, and they're on a boat when they're also attacked by Sentinels, and then Xavier's taken to space, and, like, everybody's been attacked, kidnapped by Sentinels, and our remaining X-Men are like, well, it's time to get on a spaceship and go save the X-Men. And you just want to be like, wow, I do get that this team is a family, and this team wants to work together to save each other. It's at this point where they're like, nope, we go save each other. Yeah, it's been a year. It makes me think that maybe the year was necessary. Not really seeing them grow together for us to totally believe that after a year they would go save each other like that. Yeah, I think I full-heartedly agree. I think part of what they're trying to do to supplement that is the classic issues. Like uh, classic X-Men number four, you see the relationship budding between Wolverine and Nightcrawler. My favorite classic issue. I think it's a great issue. Oh my god. It's seeing their friendship grow, and it's that's what I think the classics were kind of meant to do, was to, they're realizing there's so much time in between these issues, there's a short span of issues that they kind of need to fill in that gap a little bit more, but it's really, it's kind of easy to believe that, okay, they went through a year of experiences, even if we haven't seen all of it, they are a family now. Now this is what the X-Men, they're what the X-Men were trying to portray. They're always a family, and they're always going to protect one another and save one another. On that really positive note, I kind of have to shift over and talk about three real negative things, unfortunately. Number one, the human bad guys in this. Oh my god, the overwhelming of hated and fear that they continue to pound into this book ad nauseum. Oh my god, every human wants to kill all of the mutants. Every, except Moira. Every human wants to kill every mutant. Oh, and Peter. Just Moira and Dr. Peter Corbeau. That is it. But everybody else is like, I will bring back all of the Sentinels and we will kill everyone! And I'm just like, oh my god. And then there's that story where Colossus is on that date and he like saves the woman by transforming and she's like, you're a monster! At least we got that nice story where Nightcrawler and Logan got to be like buddies at the tavern and, you know, Nightcrawler got to show who he was and Logan was there and Logan's like, you can trust me, I'm your friend, I'm here with you, don't be afraid, you know, that kind of thing. But like, Oh my god, the hated and feared element of this gets really exhausting. Yeah, that is, especially as a new reader, you see that is going to be a theme that is heavily emphasized and pushed. No one likes mutants. And it's something that I look at and I'm like, this is everything of other comics are still in the same universe. And for the most part, no other superhero gets this kind of reaction. It's really like drilled in that Charles's mission is almost impossible. The entirety of Charles's mission I don't know if it's, it's right now, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, that he just wants mutants and humans to live co- coincide side by side. That's what he's trying to do with the X-Men, is show that they can live. But, like, every human they come in contact with does not want that. You just see them trying to assimilate as much as possible. The next thing that I kind of need to be like, womp womp, I need to take a couple of quick shots at the classic X-Men stories. I'm okay with the ones that are just character development. I enjoyed seeing Gene and Storm become friends. That was something that was really great because it, that comes later. So it's kind of helpful to me that Jonah has that emotional relationship established now to understand why I care about those characters as best friends. Same thing with Nightcrawler and Wolverine. I like that establishing relationship. The story between Gene and Scott was okay, but it was somehow the least Gene story of all of the stories. The Colossus and Thunderbird sad stories were both sad. The thing I had the biggest problem with was the forced hyper-inclusion of the Hellfire Club 30 issues before the Dark Phoenix Saga. This is going to make the Phoenix Saga feel really dragged out, really slow, 
and I don't think it's the cleanest way to tell the story. No, something that Nico notes in his own notes is that unless you know who these characters are, you have no reason to care about the story. The only character I know in this is Emma Frost, and I love Emma Frost, but it was really confusing to see her here when she hasn't been seen yet, and this issue is just full of people and stuff that's going on that I don't care about because I don't know anyone. A character dies. I have no idea who this character is. I don't care about this character. You didn't make me fall in love with this character within the pages before she died. And it's just, it's a really weird inclusion when every other classic X-Men up until this point is establishing the relationship between the current X-Men and what's going on. But this is like completely out of left field of what's going on. Something that's supposed to be happening simultaneously. It's just shoehorned in, in a way I don't necessarily, yeah. Yeah, it's one of the instances where maybe the hindsight doesn't help so much. And the number three thing I do want to comment on, well, we didn't really finish talking about the arc exactly. After the X-Men are kidnapped to space, uh, the new X-Men are all pitted against the old X-Men. It turns out that the original X-Men they are fighting are actually robots. The original X-Men are still in the ship. They get free. Everybody gets in the shuttle. They're all going to go home. Everything's fine. They have to fly through the cosmic radiation storm that was actually seeded in issue 98. So it's all set up. Everything looks really good. It's exciting. They're like, oh no, no one can survive this. Jean is like, I can fly it and also use my telekinesis. And she, you know, takes all of the knowledge she needs from Dr. Peter Corbeau, knocks him out, gets him in the back, and Scott's like, I won't let you do this, Jean! And Jean is like, you have to! And she, like, knocks him out, and she's like, just tell him! I said, whatever! And, you know, Logan's like, Jeannie, you can't do it! And Jean's like, get away from me, you brute! Which makes the scene in classic X-Men number one just feel bizarre. You know, Storm's like, Peace, and they all get back into this safe spot, and Jean is like, I'm flying the shuttle! <laughs> and so then, you know, obviously she's about to become the Phoenix, but if it wasn't obvious to you, it's obvious to you from the classic X-Men story that is like 10 years out of place. This Phoenix story, it's a depiction of the Phoenix that is not going to be exactly congruous with what you're about to read from Uncanny X-Men. I don't love some of the hindsight manipulation. It does feel manipulative. As a new reader, not knowing exactly what the Phoenix is, only really knowing Jean as the Phoenix, and I didn't know that that was something she later became, which is really interesting, and I, I love that. But it's really unclear what exactly the Phoenix is. It's establishing this the Phoenix as not Jean, and this new Phoenix of what Jean becomes isn't Jean. It's like an amalgamation of what they fused together it's really weird it's not clear at all and for this to be added for new readers it's kind of almost would create a divide of people who've read already past it and they know what the phoenix is to this now it's like you're going to confuse people you're going to confuse new readers and you're going to confuse old readers as to what exactly you're trying to say this is and it's just more Gene. I love Gene. I love Gene to death. I love Gene. But it's just so much Gene. It is so much Gene. It is actually probably one of my biggest complaints. I understand that a good portion of why they created X-Men classic backup stories was so that Claremont could play with more Gene. But we get a whole lot of Gene in Classic 1's backup story. We get a whole lot of Gene in Classic 2. We get a, a significant amount of Gene's perspective in Classic 3. Four isn't about her. Five isn't about her. Seven and eight are all about her. Six is the Hellfire Club, which is essentially about her. Growing up, I had multiple screen names with the word Phoenix in them. I have every Jean Grey action figure that was released from like 1993 to like 2007 or something. And I'm, I'm a humongous Jean Grey fan. The first time I met Chris Claremont, I had him sign X-Men. Is it 129 that the cover says? 
this comic could be worth $2,000 because it was running a special inside. And I said to him, this comic was always worth more than $2,000 to me. Very clearly a Chris Claremont fan. Just giving him back Gene is a little too much. We should pull back on the giving him too much Gene. Jonah, let's talk for a second. We read Giant Size X-Men number one. We read Giant Size Fantastic Four number four. We read Uncanny X-Men 94 through 100. And we read the supplemental material in Classic X-Men 1 through 8. Dude, we read like 200-something pages of comics. How do you feel? Do you feel like, after 200 pages, do you feel like you understand Wolverine's personality? No. Even with how much we've read, we're not at the Logan that I know of yet, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting the little pieces. Everything is going to slowly, I feel, is slowly going to start coming together to really push this into what I... I'm being told as the golden years. Uh, we know, we see Wolverine as a hothead. We see Wolverine as kind of can't take orders, really can't trust the government or work with them, but he has a little bit of a softer side. He's very dominant. He's going to take what he wants. He's going to do what he wants. Everything he wants to do just happens to fall in line with the X-Men. Yeah, that's going to be something that we deal with, you know, and I just used Wolverine as a stand-in, but are you walking away from this feeling like you really understand these characters? I do feel like, thanks to Classic, I'm walking away with an understanding, sort of, of Nightcrawler, Colossus, Storm, and Wolverine. I don't get Banshee at all. I really don't understand Moira. I know she ran in with a gun. That was cool. Xavier's still always that vague mix of creepy and creepy. I think Cyclops is a man baby. Like, I am walking away with vague notions, but I agree with you. I don't know that these are people to me yet. 200 pages is a really long time to not have people. Yeah, most of these characters right now, I want to say, feel very one-dimensional. They're very... Whatever their characteristic is, they stuck with it. And it's 200 pages is a lot to not really see growth. We don't see anyone changing. We don't see anyone for who they are. We don't still don't know much about where they came from. We have three pages of a backstory per good character or two pages. And it's, we still don't know these characters are just placed in these situations. As much as I do love these characters, I can't fully say I love them yet because I don't know who they are. They don't connect to me yet. I really agree. We're going to get a lot stronger in our next few issues. We're going to be covering some really cool stuff. And we're going to get a sense of exactly who the roster is. But I want to thank you all for coming out for the first episode of X is for Podcast. Please do join us next time when it will be myself and Kyle covering the Champions 1 through 10. You can find out more about that Dick Iceman and his really boring buddy Angel. So other than that, Jonah, where can people find you online, man? Where can people find me? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Jonah.Rubino. You can also find me on Twitter at Jonah Rubino. And as always, you can find me here on the Cage Club over at Now and Again, doing music podcasting with Chris Podcasts. You can find my comic book, KidRiotComics.com. <laughs> you can find my comic book at KidRiotComics.com. The name of the comic is not KidRiotComics.com, but man, that would be a really interesting branding technique. You can find my music over at facebook.com slash action duo. And if you want to find out more about me and check out my endless shirtless selfies, check me out over on Instagram. That's going to be Nico Action, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. So until next time, where we pick up in the Phoenix saga, we'll all see you soon. See ya. See ya.